title of this message is, We Just Ain't No Good on Our Own. Grammatically speaking, that title is wrong, but I believe the, uh, the theme is correct. Even a cursory perusal of Torah reveals the title of this message clearly. Without the influence of God's instructions, which is what Torah means, man's behavior is unrestrained. The heart of man is evil, and it will follow the lusts and the brutality of his flesh. God is capable of renewing a right spirit in a person, but he has to create a clean heart. The Torah reveals that the world is an enemy of God. What God considers good, the world sees as evil. What God considers abominable, the world seeks after diligently. The Tanakh and the New Covenant, Brit HaTashah, reveal those who are trying to walk with God also have a great struggle with their desires, almost the same as it is in the world. One of the reasons I believe the scriptures to be God's word is it includes both the times that believers do well and those times that we don't do well, when we suffer under delusion and behave poorly. In other cultures, ancient historians redacted their record of history, leaving only the flattering reports. They did so because the king would kill them if they didn't, highly incentivized. The scriptures reveal a process of sanctification. Some more quickly achieve that sanctification or holiness, some are slower. It reveals a process of being removed from the world and unto God. The word holy means to separate, and that's what is happening. He wants us to separate ourselves from any vile behavior that we see in the world. And in some cases, those who are particularly pernicious, who refuse to repent, they are simply removed. And they have found no more amongst the believers. 1 Corinthians 10. These things happened to them to serve as a warning to us. Those portions of scripture where the followers of God did poorly are a warning to those in the future who are trying to walk with God because there is no temptation such as is common unto man. I tried to reveal this in a series I, I gave on the seven churches of Revelation. The acceptance of the pagan practices surrounding the believers left them vulnerable to Yeshua's wrath. They were in danger of having their candlesticks removed from the menorah, which of course is Yeshua. Now, the tribe of Dan remains a stern warning for all believers down through history. 
Dan was the son of Bilhah, which, and she was Rachel's handmaiden. Rachel was barren. Leah was producing many children. And so in order to gain some honor back, she gave her husband, Yaakov Bilhah, bear a child in my name for my husband. And Dan received some honor when Aholiav, who was a, a Danite, was allowed to assist Betzalel of Judah in constructing the Ohelma Ed, the tent of the meeting in the wilderness. That's found in Exodus 31. But although Dan was the second largest, most populous tribe just behind Judah, Dan was given a very small inheritance in terms of the land of Israel, a very small piece. It was located just south of the half-tribe of Ephraim, also known as Joseph, uh, in terms of the land itself, and the northern tip of the Philistine lands, which would be a little north of Yafo or Jaffa, Basically, it was part of the strip of land on the Mediterranean that today is called Gaza. And Dan was under constant attack from the Philistines. Samson, the most famous Danite, reveals this conflict clearly. But Dan did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And eventually, God removed his protection and allowed the Amorites to force the sons of Dan into the hill countries. Dan had this beautiful stretch of land. Although small, it was quite beautiful. It was on a plateau that overlooked the Mediterranean, and if you turn in the other direction, you see the mountains of Ephraim. And they were forced by the Amorites to leave this fertile plain and head back up into the mountains, where they hid and the life their lives were a great deal more severe in the mountains. They set their eyes for looking to a piece of land to settle in the north of Israel. They looked up towards what is today Lebanon. And they ended up conquering a very quiet and peaceful little town in the, in the north. And they set up a shrine to house their teraphim, their household idols, and they set it up in the high places. There were some hills there. They went up on the top. There was a tell, and they built a sanctuary. Dan's population and influence in Israel began to decline because of these actions, and by the time of Ezra, in First Chronicles chapters 4 through 7, there is no mention of the tribe of Dan. Now, many people today wonder, why isn't Dan mentioned in Revelation? Well, Dan wasn't mentioned far earlier than the book of Revelation. Dan was no longer a viable tribe, even back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah. Dan effectively had their candle removed, if you will, from the menorah. They lost 
their inheritance was in the land. Dan was influenced heavily by the nations north of Israel, and there were some extremely dark practices there, and eventually they left Israel and settled in those lands. In the Talmud and the Tractate Shabbat, it describes the people of Dan, and our rabbis write, all the children of Dan were idolaters. Dan received the north side, where darkness comes. Now, it was almost proverbial. In the north of Israel, there was darkness. The actions of Dan are described in Judges, chapters 17 and 18. And these chapters tell the story of a man by the name of Micah, not the prophet. There was more than one Micah in Israel. There were at least two. This is the other guy. In Judges 17, Micah, an Ephraimite, steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. Wonderful child. When she notices the money is gone, she pronounces a curse on the one who stole it. And that's when Micah confesses. When her son confesses, she recants the curse that she pronounced, and she says, blessed is my son. I dedicate the silver to my son to make a graven image, an idol. <coughs> Micah has the idol met, uh, the uh, idol built, and he places the idol in a shrine in the house. And he fashions for himself an afad, a priestly garment, and he begins to worship the Lord God of Israel in this way. Now, obviously, nothing about this is righteous. But this is only the beginning of woes. There's more. A young lady from Jerusalem is wandering through the land, and he comes upon the house of Micah. Micah offers him money, and he offers him lodging, if he will be his priest. Now, remember, this is a levy. He's not a Kohen. He's not a priest. But Micah needs himself a priest, and so he offers the next best thing. To, he, he wants... He basically wants to buy himself an illegitimate priest. That's, that's what happens. He gives him a wage and lodging. The actions of Micah are explained in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. This saying has nothing to do with God. It doesn't mean there was no that God was not the king of Israel. What it's talking about is there was no human king who could compel the people of Israel to walk in the ways of God's Torah. So what does any of this have to do with Dan? Absolutely everything. Judges 18 reiterates the words of chapter 17 and says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And again, Dan, Dan, the tribe of Dan sent out these men to find a suitable land 
and they happened upon the house of Micah, who had the young Levi, who was made a priest, living there with him. When Micah tells him, this is my priest, they come to the young Levi, and they, have, they ask him to inquire of God in order to help them find a suitable piece of land. The young priest tells them exactly what they want to hear. He says, go in peace. The way you are going has the Lord's approval. If you're looking for a prophet or a priest, this is probably the wrong way to do it. I'm just, I'm going to surmise from this passage. You don't want to hear what you want to hear. If you're looking for a prophet or a priest, you want to hear what God has to say. Not what somebody thinks you want to hear. The latter is of no help to you. Dan leaves the house, travels up to the north, and there's this, this peaceful little village, Laish. They conquer that village, and they basically stake out some land in the northern part of Israel by, again, Lebanon. But that's not all they took. After conquering Laish, they return to the house of Michael, and the first thing they do is take his afad. Then they take his idol. Then they take his shrine. And lastly, they take the young lady, who now is the priest of the tribe of Dan. Not too long ago, the ruins of the high place in Dan, built by Jeroboam, or Yarav Am, has been unearthed in northern Israel, and you can see the compound. The stones are still stacked. It was covered by earth. They dug it up. That's what archaeologists do. Now, I became overwhelmed when I was trying to number the sins accumulated in these two chapters. It was more than my computer could keep a record of. With no king, the actions of the tribes were unrestrained. This was throughout Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, not what was right in God's eyes. With the death of Solomon, the northern tribes formed their own kingdom and separated. They seceded from Israel. By the first century, the northern tribes had determined that Mount Gerizim, which in the first century was in uh, Samaria was the place to worship God, not Jerusalem. The northern tribes during the time of the judges were worshiping in the north for expediency, not at Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant was being housed. How and where and when we worship is just as important as who we worship. And that is true throughout the the scriptures, whether you're reading the Tanakh or the Brit HaDashah. The actions of Dan eventually led to their removal from having any inheritance 
in the land that God had promised to Israel. And their candle was, in effect, removed from the menorah. Judges is a description of the times of Israel's transformation. We had been exposed to the ways of the nations that surrounded us, and the influence of those people caused us to worship our God in the ways that they worship their gods, in direct violation of God's commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 12. God says, you must not worship the Lord your God the way others worship their gods, for they perform for their gods every detestable act that the Lord hates. Everything about, it wasn't just that they had chosen another god. The ways they worshiped those gods were detestable to the Lord. And this commandment stands for believers as well. In Acts 15, we see a number of uh, Gentiles, quote, those from the nations. The word goyim means nations. And a number of the na of people from the nations are coming to profess Yeshua, who Adon, Jesus, he is, he is Lord. And they're bringing with them their backgrounds, which was heathen worship. And in the book of Acts in chapter 15, it seems right to both Peter and James, and James actually gives the final dispensation, seems right to us in the Holy Spirit that we place upon you no more than these four laws. Don't eat animals, I mean, uh, don't, sac don't sacrifice uh, or eat sacrifices made unto idols. Don't eat meat that has been strangled. Don't drink blood and no fornication. That's some strange laws. Three of them deal with food. One of them deals with sex. Well, if you don't know the background, those are bizarre. If you do, they make perfect sense. In heathen temples, there was a procedure, and it was pretty much common throughout the world. You would, you would sacrifice some meat to the idol, you turn it upside down, you bleed it out into a bowl, and then the man making the sacrifice would then drink blood. Then the temple whore would come out, and they would consecrate or make holy that sacrifice through sexual act. And it is forbidden in the book of Acts. They're trying to communicate to these people who are coming in, leave that at the door. That's not the way our God commands that we worship him. That is not holy. There's nothing... There's no connection between what you were doing in your temples and what God's people do, do in his. Now a little side note on this. These teraphim, these little household idols that uh, some of them were small and they were set on shelves, some of them were much larger. Um, some dangled from the rearview mirror on the chariot. Can't believe I said that. <laughs> These little household idols are not uncommon among other notable characters 
in God's word. Jacob's wife, Rachel, stole one of her father's teraphim when Jacob was warned in a dream to leave. Michal, David's wife, also had a rather large teraphim which she disguised as David when her father Shaul was seeking after his, uh, David's life. That's the first Samuel. The weaning of Israel from these household idols, the ways of the people who surrounded them, took many centuries. It was not overnight by any means. More time was required for the tribes of the north. That being said, it is important to note that God at times tolerates conditions within humanity that he does not sanction, nor does he approve of, but he does tolerate it. For instance, Abraham married his half-sister. That is an action that is strictly forbidden in Leviticus 18. Big no-no. God created Chava from the side of Adam. And he describes, they are described as Basarachad, one flesh. They are a unity of person. They were one person, they were split, then they were brought back together and they became whole again. It's where we get the idea of soulmates. None of us is complete. We're looking for a man or a woman who, to complete our soul, the one that was separated out from us. Some are lucky and find that soulmate. Others, not so much. Now, outside the garden, Lamech is the first man that we are made aware of that had more than one wife. And Lamech was an extraordinarily evil man, a man of deep violence. Amongst those God called, Yitzhak is the only father of the faith that had only one wife. Abraham and Yaakov both had more than one wife, as well as Moshe, Moses, David, Shlomo, Solomon. He was an overachiever. <laughs> he had more wives than there are people in Kiowa, Colorado. Now, although more than one wife is not strictly forbidden, there is a command that the king should not accumulate for himself many wives. David and Solomon both ignored that commandment that is found in Deuteronomy 17, and there was little peace in their homes. <laughs> that um, sarcastic little giggle is, is the most poignant commentary on what I just said, ever. Uh, the idea of living with numerous women in one house who are all your wives, I suspect would cause a man to purchase a hunting tent and live in the backyard. 
At least he would get some peace. There was little peace in the house of David. There was little peace in the house of Solomon. There are many times when the Lord will tolerate the desires of the flesh, but only for a set period of time. The process of sanctification or holiness is ongoing, and eventually God will reveal and require his people to conform to his ways. Polygamy was not God's vision for marriage. It's not just because there were two people in the garden. Well, of course, they, they were the first two people created, so there were only two. The operative phrase that suggests that polygamy is not of God is the fact that they became basarachad, one flesh. There was a union there that, this, that is used to describe our union with God. Husband and wife is the most intimate of all relationships. There's behavior allowed in the marriage that is not allowed in any other relationship. And that intimacy is used as an illustration to describe our husband. We're invited to the marriage supper. There's a, a deep connection with the hearts are knit together. The souls are knit together. The minds think as one. That more than anything else indicates to me that the ideal in God's eyes is one man, one woman. There is one more powerful example that all those who walk with God should learn from. And I'm pretty sure that most people have already done and erred in this way. In Judges chapters 11 and 12, we are told a story of Yiftach. He was born after his father, Gilead, had relations with a prostitute. Like I say, there was a ongoing process of sanctification that was taking place. When the other sons of Gilead grew older, Yiftach was expelled from the house. They, they threw him out because they didn't wish to share their inheritance with an illegitimate child. When Yiftach leaves, a number of scoundrels and rapscallions and ne'er-do-wells left with him. And I, and I love the, the phrase, ne'er-do-well. Uh, Gary Goldman is a Jewish comic, and he does a routine on this. And uh, he, he stops at the phrase, ne'er-do-well. And he, he, I don't know, I guess you have to be there, but it's hilarious to me. He says, how often do they do well? Ne'er, they ne'er do well. It's just. <laughs> no matter what they do, they leave well at the door. <laughs> They're not nice people. 
Later, the elders of Gilead was having a great deal of trouble with the sons of Ammon. And they sought help from the one they banished, Yivtach. Because in Judges 11.1, 1, we're told that Yivtach was a powerful warrior. He was a valiant man, very strong. Yivtach agrees to this bargain and tries to reason with Ammon to no avail. They, they won't even listen to him. And eventually he goes to war with them. And he entreats the Lord as so many before him and so many after him would do. In Judges 11, verse 30, If you will give me the sons of Ammon into my hands, then it shall be that whatever comes out of my door, the doors of my house, to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. In his exuberance, he didn't really think this through. Probably everything within his house is something he loved. He didn't really think this through. When he returns to the house after conquering Ammon, his daughter is the first one to come out through the doors. She was an only child, and she has timbrel in hand, and she's dancing before her victorious father. She is overwhelmed with joy. Yiftach is undone. He feels compelled to keep his vow to God, yet that would require human sacrifice, which is strictly forbidden. He engineered for himself a condition in which there is no right way. There's no way out of this. A vow made in haste left him with no positive choice. Interestingly enough, his daughter encourages her father to keep his vow to the Lord. In conclusion, there's an old saying that goes something like this. If you can't be a good example, be a stern warning. These passages that I've related today contain many stern warnings for the body of Messiah. And the first shall be last. Concerning vows, Vows speak to a person's integrity. Be very careful about the vows you make. Today, vows mean almost nothing. People give vows to each other, for instance, at marriage, and more than half the marriages end in divorce. The vows are discarded. They didn't really mean them but they were required to say it. We see it happen all the time in government. Men and women give their word to uphold the Constitution of the United States to protect this country from both those who are without and those who are from within. They don't mean it. They have to say it to assume the office. 
We now call them campaign promises. Candidates promise everything when they're running for office. We've become so cynical, we know they don't mean it. I remember one woman, <laughs> she was asked about the candidate that was in office and the question was, do you believe this man is a liar? Yes. Did you vote for him? Yes. Why? Because I like what he said. I don't drink, but I needed a drink after that. This, this was actually on the TV, and this person said those words. The Lord says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Any more than that proceeds from evil. Now you're trying to convince me that your word means something. If your word meant something, and you kept it all the time, you wouldn't have to convince anybody that your word was your bond. We see this expressed in the Kol Nidr prayers on Erev Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. is a prayer with one of the most haunting melodies that I've ever heard called Kol Nidr all our vows. And in, in that prayer, we are entreating God to please forgive us those vows made in haste, like Yitach, those vows that will curse, excuse me, sometimes words disappear in my head, vows that were coerced from us, and if you look at the time that that Kol Nidra prayer was, was written, it was during the Dark Ages when, when Jews were being forced to convert, when they were being forced to swear an oath that they would never marry another Jew, that they would never light the Shabbat candles. And they were being forced to do this on the pain of death for them and their family. And so to save the lives of their families, they would vow these things, and then at Kol Nidr, please, Lord, forgive. Show some mercy. I did not wish to see my family die. The scriptures say, be careful to perform the vows that you make to God. Did he show mercy with that prayer? I don't know. I guess we'll know when we get there. But it's certainly understandable. Second, worshiping God apart from the ways he has prescribed sinful. It will not result in korban. Korban in, in Hebrew is a word that is translated into our word sacrifice, but it doesn't mean sacrifice. Korban literally means to draw near. Sacrifice was the mechanics by which we drew near to God when the temple stood. And if we're not following God's prescribed ways in offering and desiring this korban to draw near to God, that worship is rejected. 
we might find ourselves further away from God rather than closer. And lastly, the most obvious point of this message, we just ain't no good on our own. Apart from God, we are simply horrible critters. It's almost like everything that God says to do, we make a list of it, and we check it off, and we do the opposite. Yeshua is trying to be a king over those who call him Lord. He's had limited success. Just as we see in Israel, our worship of God takes many forms which are not always all that holy. Jeroboam ignored God's holy days. The four feasts in the spring, the three feasts in the fall, he ignored them. He made up some days that the northern tribes would worship on. The holy seventh month was discarded by him. He made it the eighth month and chose a number of days during the eighth month in order to hold, hold holy convocations unto God. He made priests of those who were not of the tribe of Levi and of the family, the priestly family. He states that Jerusalem is just too far away to keep going there to make sacrifice. So he established high, high places in the mountains that surrounded his territory. One of them was in the old tribe of Dan, where you could come much closer than Jerusalem and make sacrifice. Worshiping God in the high places in the north was one of the main reasons for the civil war in Israel that split the kingdom into the northern and the southern kingdoms. Is it too hard to see the same behavior in the church since it divorced itself from God, the God of the Tanakh? Do we not do the same thing? Many have changed the location of the holy city some declare it to be, the body, Israel was split in two. The body of Messiah has been split into tens of thousands. Some declare Constantinople to be the holy city. Others, Rome. In our own country, we have the holy cities. We came to the new land. Well, we've got to have a holy city. Some declare it to be Salt Lake City. That's the holy city. We constructed a temple from which we can receive messages from on high. Some very strange people said that the holy city was located in Missouri, <laughs> which is a strange pronunciation of that word. It's actually misery due to the quantity of chiggers and other such insects. When I first came down here, 
I listened to a woman who was preaching who had just purchased some land in Montana where they were going to make a new holy city. And in her sermon, she said, the Lord has given us a land that is real. I-S-R-E-A-L. That's strange exegesis. Have we not abandoned the feast of the Lord for those celebrations established by man, renaming them after foreign gods? You know, it's easy to point to the world and determine that they are not walking in the paths of righteousness. And it's easy to view Israel's behavior and declare it to be evil. But should we not first look at ourselves? Are we guilty of exactly the same thing? At least you think I am preaching from a seat of righteousness. There's no righteousness sitting on this stool. Without the Lord's grace and mercy, I have no shot at heaven. Should we not seek to remove the log from our own eye that we might see clearly to see the evil in others? Man constantly seeks to improve on God's law. We've been doing it forever. Since the time God spoke the ten words at Sinai, Man has, seeked, has sought to improve it. God left out so many different things. The temperance movement prohibits the intake of alcohol. They deny that Yeshua ever partook of wine. They deny Paul was speaking of wine when he told Timothy, don't just drink water, take a little wine for the belly. Well, if you do... You go to hell. You're not saved. The holiness church and all of its iterations have determined the length of sleeves on a woman's shirt, the height of the hem on a woman's dress or skirt. Every single denomination has its own peculiar set of rules that define that denomination and at the very same time separate it from all others. In one of the greatest pieces of irony, communion, the partaking of the body and the blood of the Lord to show how we are inextricably tied one to another by his body that was broken and his blood that was shed, that very symbol is used to divide us. Catholics won't take communion with Protestants. The Missouri Synod will not take communion even with other Lutherans. It's not done the right way. You didn't pronounce the right words. Whatever the reason, it's irrelevant.
The creation of a clean heart in man is not accomplished through legislation, nor is it achieved through the customs of man. Holiness is accomplished by the transformation of the natural man into the spiritual man. It is trans transmitted by an encounter with God in which you are transfigured and a seed of light is returned to you and it starts to grow. It is not the physical circumcision performed by the knife of the moil that makes a man righteous. Never has been. It is the circumcision of the heart performed by the sharp two-edged sword that is God's word taking seed and germinating in your heart and beginning to bear fruit. Those who seek truth will always return to the fountainhead, mikor the fountainhead of, God, of God's word. And when they arrive, it's in the light of that place that they shall see light. The psalmist. Because apart from God's word, there is only varying degrees of deception. There is only one truth in the world. And that truth is contained in God's words. Anything apart from that, there has been deception. God instructs his people on how, when, where, they shall worship him and to deviate from the good and the righteous path that he has prescribed will end in failure. Do not change the word of God so that the word of God will accommodate what you want to do. That's exactly what Micah did. He bought himself a priest to tell him all the things he wanted to hear. Don't change the word of God to accommodate what you want to do. Let the word of God change you so that you will do what God wants you to do. The rewards are eternal. Father, in Yeshua's name, we thank you and give you praise, honor, and glory. We thank you that you have entrusted us with your word. We thank you that you have breathed into us your Ruach HaKodesh, your holy wind that leads us and guides us and brings to remembrance everything our Lord has spoken. But mostly, Lord, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have poured out upon your people for even when we are not always walking with you, you are always walking with us. Strengthen us in these days of deception, that in your light we would see light. In Yeshua's name, amen.